0: The Sunday Major is back to the USA. America's Card Room is kicking off 2018 with a Texas Hold'em-sized bang that could change your life. Beginning January 7th, America's Card Room is hosting the biggest Sunday major on the planet with one million and one dollars on the table every week. Yes, one million dollars guaranteed. Forget about just one time to change your life. The one million dollars guaranteed tournament is happening weekly, all for just $265 a pop. For all the info, check out americascardroom.eu.
1: Okay, welcome to this week's OneOuter.com podcast. Now, for the recent times, we've been doing the Ask Alex podcast with our friend Alex Fitzgerald, sort of question and answer session. But as long-time listeners know, One OneOuter started with me interviewing poker players such as Helmuth and Barry Greenstein and Phil Lack, etc. And recently we had Alan Boston back on the show. And a lot of you emailed in saying it was great to have these sort of chats with these professional gamblers, etc. And I've talked about the guests that we're about to bring on uh, about their podcast, Gambling with an Edge, which you can listen to. It comes out weekly that he hosts with his co-host, Bob Dancer. And Richard Munchkin, who is the guest today, wrote the book Gambling Wizards, which was the inspiration for com podcast starting. Um, I think it's seven years ago, I think it's 2011 I started, or 2010, can't remember. Anyway, uh, without further ado, today's guest, Richard Munchkin, how are you? I'm well, thank you, thank you for having me. Yeah, it's great. And um, for those that don't listen to the Gambling with an Edge podcast, I always, I don't know what it is, I always think Richard's got a great radio voice, I always i always enjoyed you talking on the show, Richard, with the guests, and uh, Bob as well, I think the two of you play off each other really well. And um, definitely check that out if you haven't already. As I say, I, I've plugged your show for you many times before. You always have a great selection of guests on that. Is that is that something you enjoy doing weekly?
2: Oh, yeah, absolutely. And first of all, I have to say thank you for uh, saying I have a good radio voice. I think most of us, myself definitely included, we hear our own voice and think it sounds terrible. Um, yeah. <laughs> but anyway, I, I appreciate the kind words, so... Uh, do I enjoy it? Yeah, I enjoy it immensely. Uh, I, I certainly am not doing it. I'm not getting rich doing it. <laughs> so, um, you know, I think we do this for the love of it. Not, uh, you know, it's not all that. Uh, it's not very lucrative.
1: Yeah, it's it's so, worth it for the stories. I mean, as I say, I remember reading your book, Gambler, uh Wizards. Now, I think I started. I think I read it maybe twenty. I want to say twenty ten or maybe two thousand nine. I think I picked it up. And I read it through and, you know, I was fascinated, obviously. I've always been fascinated by gambling and throughout my life from a young age, started on slot machines and pool halls, progressed to poker and the usual sort of trajectory. And I played poker for a living for about four or five years. And I remember reading them like the Billy Walters and stuff. And I would always scour Google for articles on these guys. And then I, I, I don't even know how I stumbled across your book. And I was like, this is filled with, uh, you know, Billy Walters, Alan Woods, uh, Chip Reese, especially for, you know, all the poker players. And it was fascinating. So if you take us, I mean, I've read on your uh, website a little bit about your bio. But if you want to just take us a little bit through your life and how you sort of got into gambling in the first place. And we definitely need to touch on the fact that Richard has written, produced and direct many classic, I would call them, I mean, you don't listen to the one-hour podcast, Richard, but we normally reference 80s and 90s action films and kung fu films and stuff. Oh, and, wow. Um, <laughs> I, we always talk about, you know, I found this obscure film from the... And they're so good. And I dig back VHS catalogs. And it was so fascinating to see some of the films that Richard's been involved in. So we'll touch on that. But if you want to take us back to where you think's a good place to start and how you got into all this sort of game...
2: Well, sure. I started playing games uh, very young. Uh, my father taught me how to play chess when I was three. My grandmother uh, taught me how to play gin rummy at about the same time. So I always, my entire life, I was playing cards and board games and just loved to play. And... um. I I didn't start gambling until high school. What happened was – oh, one thing I should say. I grew up uh, outside Chicago, which is a very cold and a lot of snow in the winter. So lots of people stayed home and played games or cards or whatever. So it was really common back then where I lived. Uh, When I got into high school, my older brother invited some friends over to play poker, and they told me I could sit in. Now, when I was a kid, my grandfather and my father used to play poker, and they would let me sit and watch and go get the scotch and things uh, for them. And uh, so when I played poker, it was literally for nickels and dimes, and I ended up winning $5.20, and it was like the angels sang and the heavens opened. And I thought, oh my God, I can actually make money playing cards. Uh, and I just thought that was the greatest thing in the world. Yeah. Um, I went to the library the next day, and I checked out whatever poker books they had, which back then, the poker books were not very good. Uh, this would have been in the 70s. Mm-hmm. And uh, I started playing poker as, as often as I could. And I was also, uh, at that time, very much into backgammon. Backgammon was very popular in the 70s. And I started gambling at that as well, so I was making money playing backgammon in poker. And when I went to college, that's all I did to earn money, was play backgammon in poker. And my degree was in theater because I wanted to, you know, go into acting. Mm -hmm. But I was unwilling to go to Los Angeles and wash dishes at night to be an actor. So my idea was I will go to Las Vegas uh build a bankroll and then I'll go to Los Angeles uh when I will be able to afford not to wash dishes at night and my idea was to go to Las Vegas and learn to count cards uh I had I was playing backgammon in a bar with a guy and he told me oh I I just came back from Las Vegas and I can win playing blackjack and I was like oh okay sure <laughs> right <laughs> And uh, he said, no, 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 this is real. This is math. And he described what card counting was. And I thought, well, that sounds plausible. Uh, and he he recommended a book called Playing Blackjack as a Business by Lawrence Revere. So I ordered the book and I read it and I immediately started practicing and learning. And on my 21st birthday, they used to have these package deals where – For $300, they would fly you to Las Vegas and give you three nights in a hotel. and um, So I I did that and I didn't know how to count cards at that time, but I had learned basic strategy Um, and I won about $200 on that trip and I thought, oh man, if I can win like this just knowing basic strategy, think how much I'll make (laughs) (laughs) if I learned to count cards. And uh, so uh, after I graduated college, I packed up and and moved to Las Vegas and uh, started – well, initially I didn't have much of a bankroll, so I got a job as a dealer. And I thought, what better way to practice counting cards than to deal blackjack, and I can practice eight hours a day while I'm there on the table. Yeah. And that's what I did, and then I I pretty much – hooked up with some guys, and joined a a card-counting team, and I started making far more money playing blackjack than I was dealing it, so I had to quit the job.
1: So when you were, uh, I take it you were sort of pit boss as well, for a little point. Yeah,
2: eventually I was what now they would call a dual rate, which means some days I would deal, and some days I would be a
1: boss. Okay, so when you were practicing counting while working, did you spot any counters like when you knew the count was good and you saw people start
2: oh oh constantly (laughs) constantly because i worked in a casino where we dealt single deck and uh it was on the las vegas strip uh, across from the old sands hotel it was a place called the castaways Mm. and every card counter in the world came in there so yeah, I would see them on a daily basis, and and I would always strike up a conversation with them, and and that would freak them out a little bit because they weren't used to a dealer, who would who would talk to them about counting cards <laughs> while they were dealing. Um, but yeah, I I met a lot of people that way, and that was actually how I got connected to Alan Woods, who I later you know wrote about in uh, Gambling Wizards. Yeah. But um, you know uh, yeah, and card counters. Uh, would to prank their friends, they would send them in and say, "Oh, go play against this dealer, knowing that I would <laughs> sort of <laughs> call them out on their card counting and start talking to them about it uh and and you know they would have uh great fun watching their friends freak out <laughs> when that yeah. happened,
1: yeah, I think it was the last time I was in Las Vegas was twenty sixteen ended uh october twenty sixteen and i went downtown the i was playing single deck blackjack in binions there but i can't remember what the blackjack payout was i can't remember um,
2: yeah they nowadays on on those games they only pay 6 to 5 on yeah, blackjack instead of 3, of three, to, three to 2, to two yeah,
1: yeah yeah so um those days i take it it was 3 to 2 single deck yes yeah yeah, yeah. the glory days. it was actually
2: the game just for a Basic strategy player, the game was break-even off the top. The
1: house had no edge
2: wow. if you knew proper basic strategy.
1: Wow. Yeah, that's crazy. Um, well, well, it's crazy because I'm in Scotland, and it's all, I think, six to eight decks that comes out of machine. And, um, you know, that's the sort of thing. And it's six to five blackjack as well. Um, wow. Here for, for yeah, when they first brought
2: in six to five blackjack, they advertised it as we're bringing back single deck, you know, but it only pays six to five. Yeah, And it didn't take them long before they just said, well, we'll just deal all
1: the games six, six to five. <laughs> and, um, and people get used to it. I, I recently read Ed Thorpe's new book, A Man for All Markets. Uh, that, that's a fascinating book. I think I've talked about it on a previous show. People should definitely check that out. And, yeah, I thought that was i thought that was a great thing yeah yeah the the roulette wearable computer as well was really interesting i mean i knew about the story but obviously not in depth like that reading about it but um fantastic book so when you you so you're a dealer slash pit boss slash card counter and when did you get into the movies then what what happened there
2: well, uh, as I said, my original plan was to put together a bankroll and then move to Los Angeles, and, um, and that is what happened. I, I, um, after I spent about five years in Vegas, made a bunch of money, went to Los Angeles, and uh, my initial plan was to be an actor, and I found out very quickly, my background was in theater, and I found out very quickly that acting in film and television was very different than theater, uh, when you're in a play, even if you have one line and you go out and deliver it, the audience receives what you give them. Um, the first movie I did, I was cut out of completely. The next one, my, I had a scene with dialogue, but the whole thing was seen from like 50 feet away and I'm way in the background. Um, and, and the final straw for me was I went to an audition and the casting director was in the back of the room on the telephone, and I was in the front with a cameraman, and he wanted me to do the scene. And I said, well, I'll I'll wait for her to get off the phone. And from the back of the room, she said, no, no, just go ahead. Just (laughs) go ahead. And she talked on the phone throughout my entire audition. And I was like, you know what? Screw these people. This is just not what I want to be doing. And I wanted more, you know, when you're a gambler, you control your destiny. You control how hard you work, when you want to work, what hours you want to work, and when you, and when you don't. And in, in that business, you're at the mercy of someone else constantly just to be able to work. So uh, I stopped wanting to act in film and television And fortunately at that time, I had a friend who was just starting to make these low-budget action movies. It was the beginning of the video boom. Um, People were just getting VCRs. There were video stores on every corner and around the world. And everybody was desperate for content. And what's funny in the United States is not necessarily funny in France or Japan. But a car chase is a car chase. Everybody wanted action movies. And so I started out working, you know, behind the scenes on these movies. And after I had worked on quite a number of them, the, you know, they gave me an opportunity to direct. And uh, so uh, from that point on, I started directing.
1: Yeah, and to name but a few, you've worked with, again, we do talk about films like this, and it's guys like Don the Dragon, Wilson, Cynthia Rothrock, I mean... I'm 34. I was born in 1983. Anybody else my age, especially males, will remember I used to rent out four or five videos at the weekend. You'd get like a deal, four or five tapes for £5 pounds if you handed them back on the Monday or something. Right, and it right. would be like films with all these people in the trailers and the famous voiceover guy. And I argue it was a golden generation for that type of cinema. And I know what you're saying, like some of these low budget action films, you watch them now and they date, you know, in the acting, but they have a charm about them still. And I think especially if you watch them as a kid and then you've not watched them in years, you put them back on. it is, there's a real nostalgia about this sort of genre now, actually. And I watched a great documentary about canon films at the time who were churning out all these sort of action films. And it, sure. was, it was fascinating. So you must have you must have met some amazing characters, probably uh, just as colorful, if not more, than in the gambling world. While you were doing that.
2: Oh, definitely. And you know, it's a shame that those movies are not showing up. You know, at two o'clock in the morning on Cinemax or whatever. Mm. Um, but you know, the companies that I made them for. Ended up selling out to other companies, who then sold to other companies, and some of them went bankrupt. And and who knows whatever happened to all those films? Yeah. They, uh You know they. It, it would be nice to see them come back, uh, on TV late at night or something, but or on Netflix. But
1: yeah, yeah. Um. So you decided, as you say, like many gamblers do, as professional gamblers. It's there's something inherent in the character, I think, that they just authority or bosses and I think restriction um of hours especially um and lack of freedom is a real, real big decision maker um in terms of going for it full time. So when you you know, Rich on his podcast they always talk about APs, advantage players, and Richard was, you know, or still is I mean you've mentioned recently on some of your own shows that you know you've retired four or five times or or something along those lines you've quit. <laughs> you've quit that you've retired so if you want to just take us about maybe some stories that you know when you started stepping fully into the gambling world as a as an advantage player and maybe where you sort of see yourself these days i mean i know you guys can't go right into everything what you're up to et cetera, and i respect that but i'm sure like from the past you can maybe give us some colorful stories
2: oh um uh- Sure. Uh, well, when I first uh, stepped in, actually, the way my transition from dealer to player, uh, I was going out after working as a dealer and and playing uh, blackjack, but I didn't have a lot of money, so I was basically betting red chips. And I was still, at that time, I was a, a very, very strong backgammon player. And Another card counter came into where I work and said, there's this uh, Australian guy in town and he wants to play backgammon for a lot of money. And I said, set it up you know, uh, for however much he wants to play for. Because at that time, there were maybe 10 or 15 people in the world that I thought I was not a favorite against at backgammon, and none of them were from Australia. So um, he set up a meeting, and this guy was staying at the Desert Inn on a on a comp, and he was a card counter, and uh, I took a couple of friends of mine that were also backgammon players, and we went over to the Desert Inn, and the first thing he said when I walked in the room is, look, I've been doing some calling around, and I hear I'm really outclassed, and there were, and I said, you know what, that's fine, we don't have to play for a lot of money, we can just play a chouette, which is a way of playing backgammon with multiple people, Uh, you know, we can play for small stakes, and just make it more of a social thing, you know. And there were some other card counters in the room with him, and one of them was Alan Woods. And we played backgammon for a week, and we would order up lots of room service and everything. And at the end of a week, Alan said to me, how come you and your friends are not playing blackjack for more money? And I said, well, we don't have a lot of bankroll, so, you know, that's what we can afford. Mm-hmm. And he said, well, how about I put up $20,000 and you guys play as a team for me and you double the 20000 and we'll split it 60-40, 60 to him. And, uh, <laughs> and I said, you've known us a week and you're going to hand us $20,000 and tell us to go gamble in the casinos and, and report back to you how we did. And he reached into his coat and he pulled out $20,000 and slid it across the table to me. And I think back on that, and I think, I mean, it's just an amazing story that he would do that. Um, But, yeah, that was really the beginning of my transition from amateur to professional. And pretty quickly, I ended up uh, quitting job and, uh, you know, playing full time. When when you say I've retired four or five times, the first time was when I moved to Los Angeles to get into the movie business. And I had made a lot of money, and I went there, and I was going to pursue acting. And uh, what happened at that point was I heard about two games. I heard about a game on the island of Curacao that had very good rules. And I also heard that they were going to open a new casino in Aruba and that it was going to have single deck. And so I called a friend and I said, hey, there are these two games. I don't want to get involved in a long bankroll, you know. And he said, fine, let's just go play those games and, you know, we'll just split it up when we're done.
1: Mm
2: -hmm. Um, Unless we lose, (laughs) right? (laughs) So, of course, we go and we lose. We end up losing and I ended up teaming up with him and the other members of his team. And it it was probably the worst bankroll of my life. It took us a year and a half to uh, dig out and actually make money from that initial big loss. Uh, so I was sort of back in. Uh, and then I would go back and forth. and uh, But one thing that happened... Uh, that year and a half later was Alan Woods called me again and he said, I have a game for you to go play. And I said, you know, I'm really involved with these other guys on the team and I can't really go play for you if we're all working together here. And he said, well, I'll tell you what, how about the whole team goes and plays this, um, but whatever you're going to bet, just uh, double it and, and I'll take the other half of the action. So I said, okay, you yeah, sounds good. And it turned out there was this game in South Korea that the players had an advantage off the top, just a simple basic strategy player. And so we went to Korea and started playing that game, realized very quickly that there were like 40 guys that were playing there every day like a job. They would show up at 9 o'clock in the morning get their fried rice and their orange juice at the table and sit there for 8 to 10 hours a day counting cards. Hmm. And we said, this cannot last. And so we decided, but at the time, the economy in Japan was booming and the Japanese players in this casino were just losing tons and tons of money like I've never seen before the action they were getting. So, we recruited Japanese players from Tokyo, and uh, they would sort of be the beard for us. We would sit at the table with them. We would bet minimum, and they would bet maximum. And they did come in, and they barred all of those card counters uh, on one Sunday. Uh, but we survived, and we were able to play there for three and a half years. Wow. And, um, you know, we were able to win over a million dollars in one casino in Seoul. Yeah. Um, and another half million at the other casinos around the country nice uh,
1: so the thing about blackjack is a lot of people talk about it now I mean we've already touched on rule changes in terms of decks and payouts etc and obviously casinos um, people speak about I think the phrase is players when they try it they're feeling heat or they're getting backed off etc and how much of it do you think today, I mean I know I know yourself, it's kind of a loaded question because gambling with an edge, the podcast Richard and Bob Dancer do the, the message I get from it is really, with your brain, uh, anything is still really possible, and people that say things aren't possible and these games, you know, it's impossible to count cards for a living, etc, now they're just not finding edges, etc, and there, there's lots of other little edges people look for, but It was obviously a lot easier back in those days, although I assume there would have been still problems that you all encountered, like numerous problems. But for a young guy listening, or even, you know, whatever a young guy is these days, um, someone who's looking at getting into something like becoming an advantage player, or even close to just going to the casino and giving themselves the best shot, in terms of learning basic strategy with Blackjack and getting into counting cards... What do you think the potential is for someone trying to start out from scratch again and try and bootstrap it up? because with poker, we always talk about the young guys that start with you know bankrolls of a thousand dollars or less or they, they roll up to five thousand and then they move up the stakes and um, Blackjack obviously you're playing against the casino rather than uh, uh, other players, so it's casino money. But what do you think about that? Like guys that maybe watch a film like Twenty One or read the book, and they want to make a go for it, whether they're living in the UK or or the states now. What do you think their their chances are, and how should they proceed?
2: Well, I I think it's more much more difficult now. And if you have a very small bankroll like that, a thousand dollars or five thousand dollars, it would be very very tough because. Now, the the minimum, the table minimums are even higher than they were. So you can't go find a $5 table that you can practice on. Mm. Um, and And if you had a bankroll that small, you would have to think of it as a replenishable bankroll and realize that you may easily lose the entire thing and have to take a pause while you build another small bankroll to start again. I don't know about the conditions over in Europe, but in the United States, I would say somebody with a very small bankroll like that, I think they would be much better off starting out with video poker or regular poker um, because you can play smaller stakes and, and build a bankroll that way. Uh, I don't know if there is video poker in the UK, so I don't know what the opportunities are like there for that. But in the States, I would say that might be a better way to go, either video poker or regular poker.
1: Yeah, that's, that's a great point you make about the stakes because with poker, you can literally, especially online in the UK, I mean, online poker here is 100% legal, and it's also, like all gambling in the UK and Scotland, 100% tax-free. Um so we've got a great thing, you know. <laughs> actually
2: here. actually if I had a if I if my son was over there and he had a small bankroll like that where he should be going is the online casinos. There's a lot of money to be made. You can build a bankroll playing online casinos by exploiting their
1: bonus systems. Their bonuses, yeah, and playing, yeah. playing through all that. Um so that's really interesting with a blackjack in terms of you say that, you know, the stakes, it's it's just they would have to be tolerant with a high risk of ruin, as we say, when it's the bankroll with 5,000 even trying to attempt to play uh, blackjack because of just variance and the risk of ruin yep. could just be so, so high that they would have to be willing to reload.
2: You know, the other thing, I uh, I'll just relay one of my favorite stories that I tell a lot. Um, There's a book called Moon and Sixpence by Somerset Mon. and it's the story of Paul Gauguin the painter and Gauguin was a banker in London and he had a wife and children and he up and quit his job one day and moved to Paris and just to paint Mm -hmm. or at least that was his story and in the book There's a friend of the family and the wife goes to the friend and says, you know, he's run off with a mistress, he's in Paris, he's quit his job, left his family, go talk some sense into him. And the friend goes to Paris and finds Gauguin, flat broke, living in an attic, painting. No mistress, just painting. And he says, uh, you know, what are you doing? And he's like, this is what I have to do. I have to paint. And he says, well, are you any good at it? And he said, if you threw me into the ocean and I had to swim for my life, you wouldn't ask me if I was any good at it. This is what I have to do to live. Mm. And I think if, you're, if you want to be a professional gambler, it can only be that way. You can't go into this because you think, oh, this will be an easy way to make money. Because I guarantee you it is not. <laughs> it is not an easy way. Yeah. It's going to be a lot of work, and if you don't have the passion and drive behind it, I don't think you can be successful. So that's what I would say. If somebody wants to do it, they should only do it if they can't do anything else, and they feel like they have to do it. Um, And the other thing that I think is really tremendously important, everything that I said about learning, whether it was backgammon or blackjack or filmmaking, Um, I read every book I could find, and then I went out and found other people that were good at what it was I was trying to learn. And the people that you surround yourself with are going to have a huge impact on your success. And sometimes it's hard to go out and find those people, but if you really want to be successful, I think it's essential.
1: Yeah, that's great advice. I mean, it's that old thing of, I can't remember if it's you're the average of the six people you spend the most time with, or something like that. Oh yeah, Tim <laughs> Ferriss said. <says laughs> yeah, that a lot. Tim, yeah. Yeah, t- and it's definitely true within gambling. And I mean, we talk about this on the show with poker. And uh, as I say, I played professionally online for four or five years, and it got to the stage where I was just I didn't want to do it anymore. Um, I was a winning player and successful, um, and made money. You know, made a living comfort of my home playing from a computer but i was literally literally at the desk for you know 50 plus hours a week and it took a toll on health in terms of um sitting around and not getting enough exercise you know i was bad at that during that period i neglected my health a bit and also just the emotional swings that every gambler will experience in dealing with that you know that improved and i sought work on that but it was just it was a battle, and my own background is I was buying and selling antiques and collectibles from a young age, like 12 years old. And I got into gambling and roundabout, and still, still play poker, uh, tournaments, and also cash games, but mainly tournaments. And I just enjoy you know, the buying and selling, and that's what I said to Alex. It's like, we get people sending questions for the show. And Alex is a full-time uh, coach and poker teacher, and produces webinars, etc., for for poker. And really, he does uh, you know analytics and the, the tools now with poker. It's it's crazy. You know the game theory, optimal, everything. And yep. you get people sending in these questions, and some people are repeat sending the questions. And they won't do the work away from the table. They just want, you know, to play. And Alex says in a nice way, but you've really got to to want this. And by wanting it, that means studying and putting in the hours. Whereas I think gambling definitely does attract a sort of lazy person sometimes. Now, I'm not saying these are bad people are like that, but there is a bit of delusion that gambling is easy money, as you say. And, and it's the same with poker. Lots of people get in... And they can be lucky at the start and maybe win a tournament for 20, 30,000 and then win another one for whatever. And then years, they can go and through of frustration because simply they were fooled by randomness. Is t- uh, Nassim Taleb, you know. Yeah, <laughs> yes. And the poker community is full of them. Um, I don't know if the blackjack community is because, as you say, um to go on a heater for that many years in terms of it. Although I, there was a great episode that Richard and Bob had on gambling with an edge recently. It was a card counter by the name of Yoshi, who was a young guy on some crazy heater. He turned something like, was it 3,000 into yeah, 300,000 like, or something? Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah He yep. I, mean, I think he won six hundred thousand dollars or something uh, so far. I mean, he's still going. He's still going yeah, and still winning yeah, like crazy. Yeah. Uh, but he is playing with an edge. That that is the difference. I mean, yeah, yeah. Uh,
1: <laughs> but right but, in variance uh, for all it was. But
2: worth. <laughs> yeah, to what you said, the analogy I use is that people want to buy a diet book read it and wake up thin yeah they don't want to actually once they read the book they don't want to actually do the work that it says you have to do in the work and gambling is the same way they want to buy a gambling book and just instantly start winning money (laughs) and it just doesn't work that way
1: yeah i know i've got to see you i bought gambling wizards and i'm not a millionaire yet (laughs) right (laughs) right but um so again touching on your book gambling wizards um The fascinating one was Billy Walters, obviously. I mean, a huge name in the gambling world. Um, How did you get access to Billy Walters? Had you worked with him before, uh, friends with him, socialized with him before? Or did you simply approach him for an interview for the book?
2: You know, um, at the time, he had not done any interviews. And I thought it was going to be impossible. I really thought he was, I didn't think I had a chance. Mm -hmm. But I thought, why not? Uh, you know give it a shot and I knew a guy who had been a bet runner for him and I contacted him and initially said no I don't want to ask him you know I, I don't want to you know so yeah. I just took a shot and I wrote him a letter and I sent it to him and I said look I'm doing this book and I think you really should be in it. And he, it turned out, he called the guy that I knew that was a bet runner and said, do you know this guy and why should I do this? And my friend said, because it would be a chance for you to tell your side of the story. And so, and oh, and the other thing I said to him is, I will do the interview I will transcribe it and edit it, and before I show it to anyone else, I will give it back to you. If there's anything in there that you want to take out, I will take it out. So, you know, if you're willing to trust me that I'm telling you the truth, there won't be anything in there that you don't want in there.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And he said, okay, and, and and so he agreed to do it. And... Uh, I don't know if you're aware over there, but he's currently in prison uh, for insider trading.
1: I I Actually, I saw the news, I think I picked it up on Twitter a few weeks or a few months ago, that the case was coming. I didn't know he was actually in prison, so I thought he was awaiting sentencing. But has that happened? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Yep. Crazy. Um, Yeah, he seems to be, as you say, a little bit more... The last few years, I think there was a sixty minutes on him actually as well, wasn't yep. there? That I yep. watched. Yeah, he, he seemed to be talking about start- more. Yep, he started doing a
2: lot more interviews and stuff. And as you say, sixty minutes. So, yeah. uh, but at the time that I got him, it, nobody in the gambling world could believe that I had that I had got him. So, yeah, uh, and, and it was funny because. Someone I thought would be easy was Doyle Brunson, because he had done so many interviews. Yeah. And I contacted Doyle, and he said no, that he didn't want to do it, that he had done too many of these
1: things.
2: (laughs) And it was Billy that picked up the phone and called Doyle and said, you know what? I'm doing it. I really think you should be in the book. And so Doyle said, okay.
1: Oh, nice. Nice. And you're obviously Chip Reese as well, the late Chip Reese, and... I mean, arguably one of the people speak about Stu Unger in terms of raw talent and no limit hold'em ability, but there I think there's no doubt that a lot of people, the consensus, even Doyle said that the all-round poker player and actually smart gambler in terms of taking money off the table and using it for life and investing, etc., um, was Chip Reese. So, what was it like uh, speaking with Chip Reese for the book, and how did, how did you find him?
2: Well, that that was well. First of all, living in Las Vegas and the backgammon community and the blackjack community, it's really kind of a small world, or at least it was back then. And um, I knew Chip kind of vaguely from backgammon. He took up backgammon in the 80s, um, but I mean, just just to give you an example, when I went to his house to do the interview, I walk in and. Mike Svobotny, who's also in the book, and Gus Hansen were sitting in his living room playing Klaviyosh. And uh, another guy that I knew very well from Backham and Billy and Cardona, he was one of the best nine-ball players in the world, was pl- was shooting pool in his living room or in his game room. So, and I, you know, I knew all these guys. So it really was kind of a small world. So getting, I mean, Chip was just a great guy and a really nice man and very easy he was easy to get to mm-hmm.
1: um yeah that was an easy one and the thing about vegas and again touching on gambling what attracts a lot of people is there's a sort of romanticism and uh especially about las vegas and i think it's old las vegas um, the the one that you that you talk about and the thing is, I remember hearing... I no, I, I want to say it was you, Richard, that said it on the podcast, but you told a great story about Benny Binion, and I was wondering if you could tell the story here for our listeners.
2: Are you talking about the, the story at the World Series of Poker?
1: Yeah, yeah.
2: Yeah, so, yeah, it wasn't Benny, it was Teddy, his Teddy. son. Okay. So, um... It was the early 1980s, and the World Series of Poker was very small at that time. And uh, they had in the, there was an alcove in Binion's where they would shove the poker tables, and that's where it was. And I went down there to the World Series. I don't know if the main event was going on or it was something else, but I got approached by this uh, poker player I knew from Backgammon uh, that they called CK, Crazy Kid. And I hear CK is still around playing, but he came up to me and he said, if I can play blackjack single deck and spread from one hand of 100 to three hands of 500, and sometimes the dealer will show me their whole card, can you beat that game? (laughs) And I said, yeah, yeah, I I could crush that game, but they're not going to deal that game to you. And he said, they will for me. And I said, okay, and we came up with some rudimentary signals, and we sat down, and we started to play. And because he was a crazy kid, and he did crazy things, they were letting him do this. And every time Teddy came through the pit, CK would go, Teddy, what's the dealer got in the hole? And Teddy would reach over and flip over the dealer's cards. Uh, so, of course, we're losing, <laughs> right? <laughs> it's never easy. <laughs> and while ends. we're playing a guy a couple of tables away is getting drunk and is drunk and obnoxious and the security guards come and they kind of pick this guy up and they take him out of the casino, throw the guy out. He's kind of yelling and they anyway, they throw the guy out and shortly after that, we hear what sounds like a gunshot and everybody in the poker room stands up and starts running toward us in the pit and CK and I jump up from the table and run back into the bathroom which is kind of back behind the cashier's cage and I get to the bathroom and CK's already there and you know our hearts are pounding and CK, CK says did you get the cash and I said no now On the table, he had had a pile of $100 chips, and on top of it was a 10-pack, which was $10,000 and $100 bills wrapped in a rubber band just sitting on top of his chips. (laughs) And we both go running back out into the casino, and we see the chips, but the cash is gone, and there are no dealers there. And all of a sudden, this hand comes up from beneath the table with the the 10 pack in it and he kind of waves it and the dealer peeks his head above the table and he goes I've got your money (laughs) And uh, so we come back now it turned out it was not a gunshot it was the drunk guy that they threw out had thrown a rock through the window and when the window broke it sounded like a gunshot with a big crack Uh, security guards chased the guy down in Fremont Street And Teddy Binion went out there and shot the guy dead. Uh, Now, this is like 2 o'clock in the morning. There's a dead guy in in Fremont Street, you know, by the Fremont Hotel. Yeah. And Teddy comes back, and the police come, and they say, Teddy, you have to come down to the station with us. And uh, can I swear on this show?
1: Yeah, yeah, of course.
2: And Teddy says, fuck you, get out of my casino. And they're like, Teddy, there's a dead guy in the middle of the street. You can't, you have to come to the police station. We can't just pretend like nothing happened. Fuck you, get out of my casino. And now they break down the door of the cashier's cage. He had locked himself on his, in the cashier's cage. And they break the door down. And the whole time Benny Binion's wife is yelling at them, you leave my son alone. And... They, they get in, they handcuff him, and they take him out in handcuffs. And, you know, the consensus was that Teddy had shot the guy, but one of the security guards ended up taking the rap, did a short time in prison, and apparently had a very cushy job waiting for him when he got out.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: So, um, yeah, Vegas was a very different place. I mean, a very different time. Things were very different you know back then frank rosenthal's car blew up you know outside the stardust like in the movie casino that was real um so people (laughs) like to say things were so much better when the mob had las vegas but not for my money no no (laughs) you know there's a lot about it that 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 was not good
1: yeah yeah it's fascinating though um for a personal question from my side i'd love to ask you about a sort of. Again, I I learned about this guy from listening to your show, Gambling with an Edge, and then I've read his blog. Um, I've not checked in a while, though, because sometimes it, it was quite sporadic. But this uh, James Grosjean uh, character, I also read a book. I think it was not a book, an article online. I want to say it was Cigar Aficionado or possibly even GQ. Did quite an in-depth article um, interview about him um, and like a, a little bit of profile and what he was up to. Now, he wrote one of the or two of the uh, books in gambling that are sort of uh, considered Bibles of advantage play and uh, trying to track one down um, beyond counting. And then there's like a second one. I can't remember the name of the second one.
2: The second Um, one is called
1: Exhibit CAA. After his case, wasn't it?
2: Yeah, it that was how the the book was the first book was labeled in his court case where he sued <laughs> Caesars Palace and Gaming Commission and 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 the police force. Um but the second book, Exhibit CAA, everything in the first book is in the second book. So it was really just sort of a giant expansion of the first book.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: It's very difficult to find. Um and and I think for a lot of people that buy it it's a big disappointment because they don't understand it. They think they're going to buy, you know, the secret to go, going to make easy money. But it's a reference book. And for the people who know how to use it, it's worth its weight in gold. But for the people who don't, it's a doorstop. So I actually think it's kind of a genius, genius book in that regard. Um, You know, he's a brilliant guy, Um, he, in addition to, you know, he he did all of his PhD work at the University of Chicago in economics, uh, but in addition to all of his computer programming skills and his math skills, he is the hardest working person I've ever met in my life. Uh, We call him the vampire because he, he never sleeps. and. I one time said to him, uh, if I had to put the over-under on the number of days per year that he's in the casino, mm-hmm. I said, I'd, I'd put the over-under at 325 and he laughed, and he said, oh, the over would be a lock. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, as I say, the hardest working person that I've ever met, uh, and just and just brilliant. Yeah and there is actually you might look up uh the New York Times magazine section. If you look up if you just google James Grosjean New York Times,
0: you'll mm-hmm. find
2: a good article uh about about a game that he went beat, uh where it was actually uh a, a game of craps where they were dealing it with cards instead of dice. That's
1: fascinating. I think you mentioned on the show before that you try to get him on, but he's never came on. And obviously knowing him personally like you do, do you think you'll ever get him on your show?
2: Well, he said his next book is going to be a book about counting. And... And he said that when that book comes out, he would come on the show. Now, that was, I don't know, five years ago or something. (laughs) (laughs) Uh... So who knows when this book will ever come out um or if it'll come on the show. You know, he's a very private guy as yeah. are a lot of very very successful. There are there's a list. There're about 5 guys on a list that are sort of my dream guests that have never been willing to come on the show. And actually it wasn't we didn't get Ed Thorpe until last year when yeah, his I loved book that came show. out. That was great. And that was, you know, he's one of my heroes and and that was just such an honor to get to get him on the show, um, but yeah, there, there are some guys who just you know are very private, um, and
1: and don't want to do it, and he's one of them. So, do you think like Thorpe he will ever write his sort of autobiography, essentially, which is what A Man for All Markets is? Do you think James Grossman would ever do something like that in the future? I doubt it.
2: I yeah. doubt it. He's really more <laughs> yeah, a numbers a guy.
1: Yeah. I'm sure he's got fascinating stories, and you know the the life would just be, you know, you just like you say, you would be a dream interview on your show, especially with you guys talking to him, and um, you probably need to do a a double episode for that one, to, and you wouldn't even touch, you know, touch it. Yeah, yeah.
2: But but when you save the life, you know, a lot of people the life is not glamorous. <laughs> you
0: know, a <laughs> no, lot of times yeah. it's
2: four guys four you know four sweaty guys staying in a cheap motel room uh uh you know in the middle of nowhere
1: in winter trying to whack some casino down the street i know but do you not yourself i know from even times like that in my life with other things with business and poker etc all right at the time it wasn't great but you do you not know, look back with a the nostalgia and uh you know it's a good story oh to share absolutely and, yeah, yeah you absolutely. Know, I, I think there is so i know it, i'm not saying it's uh james grossier on a private jet and sipping cocktails and 007 type thing but <laughs> to, to me the interesting stories are guys in the motel with a uh, starting out with whatever you know uh just their wits and you know a small bankroll and stuff i mean they're always uh the most fascinating one and um you know, although just to, I forgot to mention, there was another great episode you did um, recently. Um, again, sort of the the poker players uh, myth, uh, mythological guy um, is Phil Ivey, and who you know is a private person as well. He doesn't do podcasts and he does the odd interview, etc. But nothing. Oh yeah, really he's good.
2: on my list. He's one of the guys that I would like yeah. to get. That I, yeah. yeah.
1: Yeah, Ivy was great. I remember when Barry Greenstein, I had him on the show, and I was talking to Barry all about Ivy, and when Barry Greenstein was running Poker Road with his son, they had the life of Ivy, and that was great. It was them following him around, and he only did that as a favour to Barry, as he's good friends with Barry Greenstein, and it was great. You saw him going to these, you know, the casinos and opening up these private craps tables, etc. There was no baccarat play uh, at that time, but... Um, so touching on that, I really enjoyed the show you did with the, the on Ivy about the edge sorting case and the Queen of Sorts. And obviously with that happening in the UK, it actually got quite a bit of press over here, mainstream press on BBC News and uh, television and other papers, etc. And what's your take on that? I mean, that casino just basically getting away with not paying him. What What, what kind of message do you think that sends to... Average Joe punter and also high rollers.
2: You know, people ask me if casinos cheat. And my answer is they don't have to because they do things like that. The modern day version of casino cheating is they just don't pay. And, And the UK is particularly bad because casinos in London have started stealing players money for counting cards. Yeah. I know of several cases where somebody was counting cards in a casino and the casino just stole their money. And uh one of them the casino said this is a private club, the rules of the club are that card counting isn't allowed. You were counting cards, we're keeping your $40,000 or 40,000 pounds. Yeah. You know, I mean it's it's just a travesty and the the problem is that the the press doesn't seem to care, you know, they don't they don't do anything about it. So, yeah, yeah I think it, it was a horrible precedent. You know, he lost his appeal to the Supreme Court there on the edge sorting case. I I thought it was an insane ruling, but you know that is uh
1: that is what we have to live with. Yeah. Yeah um so richard i mean this question i'm going to ask you can obviously go into it as much as you want and even if the answers are, no, are, are a shutdown it, it's it's fine <laughs> Um. so you said you retired you know four or five times we touched on that so what does sort of richard munchkin's life involve these days in terms of you know you've obviously got the podcast going and are you still uh searching for EV? um for want of a better phrase or um i, I don't think you guys ever retire do you
2: No, I don't, yeah, we, I don't. (laughs) Um, So what does my life look like? I'm doing more theater again. You know, I've done some some shows here in Las Vegas. Um, I'm doing some uh, classes. Uh, I'm doing an improv class right now. Uh, I'm doing some traveling. I, I do still play when, usually when it's, well, the criteria are things like, who am I going to be playing with? Is people that I have a good time with? Uh, where is? It, what is the location? Like, if you, there'd be a much ch- better chance of me playing if it was a uh, Caribbean island than if it was the middle of America in the dead of winter. Mm-hmm. Um, and and the or the other thing is, is it something unusual, right? That's going to make a good story. One of the things I'm really proud of on our podcast is that we have had people on talking about how to beat almost every single game imaginable. Games that you didn't think could possibly be beat. Slot Machines, Kino, The Lottery. I, and I'm talking about with a mathematical edge. And so if I have the chance to go out and play some game that I've never played before, or, or more importantly, that no one has ever played before, uh, those are the kind of games that that really
1: attract me. Mm-hmm. Uh, but have you have you been to Macau recently? I was in Macau last year. I sorry, yeah, just last year now. It's, um, I that was the first time I'd been to Macau. I've been to Hong Kong several times in mainland China as well. Um, but I that was the first time I went to Macau, and I found it a really strange place in terms of the. The games, there was, I didn't see much Blackjack, actually, there. No, and, no, it's mostly Baccarat. Uh, yeah, tons of Baccarat, and also the game, the the dice were in this, like, glass sort of cover. I'm not sure what, what game it was. It was, like, their... Sick uh, Bowl. Sick Bowl, Sick Bowl. That was it, yeah. Yeah, yeah, because uh, yeah, we were, I was there with my fiance, and we were obviously in Hong Kong. We only went to Macau for three days. I was going to play some poker, but I ended up not. And we had a little wander around, and we were having a look, and there wasn't much roulette either. There was a little roulette, but a lot of it was machine roulette and just done with the computer terminals, like they do in the UK here quite a lot now as well. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I haven't
2: been there in quite a while, so... uh, I am making an Asia trip
1: soon, though. Yeah, yeah. Um, Okay, Richard, um, is there any story that you feel our listeners should know or hear? Because you're an excellent raconteur, and I always enjoy listening to your stories, and you've already told a couple here, but we are approaching the hour now, and like you guys, I sort of try and keep it at the hour for for our listeners. Is there any sort of story you you could end it on that you think would be a good one to tell? I don't want to put you on the spot, but I am. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) um, Hmm.
2: Yeah, I mean, nothing Nothing comes to mind. You know, usually these stories pop into my mind when somebody asks a question that spurs them. Yeah. Um, but, yeah,
1: nothing... Uh... Well, uh, how about a rags-to-riches one, then? Does that trigger off any bells, someone with... Um... Well,
2: <laughs> I mean, the the one thing I will say is people often say, you know, what's your biggest win or those kind of things. Um, and, uh, I mean... The, uh, one story I usually tell people when they ask about the kind of the amount of money involved that kind of thing is um my brother and I went to uh Busan, Korea, and uh on Friday night, we won a hundred thousand dollars, and on Saturday and Sunday, we lost it all back <laughs> so um yeah uh. I guess you could say, well, it was just a nothing weekend, right? Nothing happened. We ended up breaking even. But uh, but it was it was a bit of a roller coaster.
1: Yeah. Well, as long as you're you're plus E V, it's all good, isn't it? That's that's right, what it's about. Right. That that's is, it's about. That is, uh, okay, so as I've mentioned, Richard hosts his Gambling with an edge podcast that you can find at I believe gamblingwithanedge.com, dot com and it's also available on iTunes. And uh, richardmunchkin.com is Richard's website, his own website. And I believe you post episodes there as well, Richard, don't you? I do, yep. And also on YouTube, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts. Yeah, and again, I really do recommend that show. It's one I've listened to for years and years. And I still go back through archived ones of maybe any I've missed or re to other ones as well. Um, I don't think I've ever heard a bad episode, and I'm not just being sycophantic towards Richard. I think uh, they are all entertaining, and actually, some of them ones that you put on that you think maybe you know aren't my cup of tea personally or whatever, they end up being the best ones. Um, some of the female gambling characters you've had on are fantastic. The stories are just. Um, yeah excellent and if you search the ivy i think it's queen of sorts ivy if you search that Gambling with the edge you'll find it on youtube um or uh, on itunes and that was just phenomenal the, she was hilarious um yeah. about, <laughs> yeah. about the stories uh really really good stuff richard is there anything else you'd like to mention in terms of how people can you know oh check out gambling yeah. gambling wizards obviously you can order that on amazon as well
2: yeah, the other thing I'd like to say is we really appreciate uh, questions and feedback from our listeners. So if you have a question, uh, you can send it to us at uh, gamblingwithanedge at gmail.com or check out our Facebook page, which is facebook.com slash gamblingwithanedge. Or if you want to connect with me on Twitter, I'm at RWM21.
1: Okay. And uh, Richard, all that's left to say is I could listen to you for another few hours and it's excellent. It's actually surreal for me. It's a bit of a fanboy moment in terms of, uh, as I said, Richard's book was the inspiration for com all those years ago. I love listening to his show and it's been kind of weird because it's like when I hear his voice, it's like I'm just lying with my headphones on listening to Gambling With an Edge, but I'm actually talking with you. It's like watching a film and actually speaking to the character or something in a surreal (laughs) way. That's the best way I could explain it. But um, I really thank you for your time today, Richard. It was an absolute pleasure having you on and um, we'll maybe see if we can get some feedback and people can send in questions and maybe in a few months or, you know, towards the end of the year, we can get you back on again if you would be up for that. Sure. Absolutely.
2: I I feel bad. I feel bad. I'm not talking about
1: poker, but I guess you're, you're,
2: podcast is about more than just that so that's yeah. good
1: no it's about people and gambling and uh, you certainly fit that remit and uh, the poker thing is good to give him a break um, the guy I do the other episodes with Ask Alex show is a question and answer session and he is on the ball with these analytics and number crunching with Texas Hold'em recently and he's doing a lot of exciting things with that so it's good to give them a break from the the hardcore maths and and talk about some fascinating things that we have to do with yourself. So thanks again for coming on the show. And we will hopefully, hopefully rather have you back on in the future.
0: Cheers, Richard. Okay. Thank you much. Bye-bye. The Sunday major is back to the USA. America's card room is kicking off 2018 with a Texas hold'em sized bang that could change your life. Beginning January 7th, America's Card Room is hosting the biggest Sunday major on the planet with one million and one dollars on the table every week. Yes, one million dollars guaranteed. Forget about just one time to change your life. The $1 dollars guaranteed tournament is happening weekly, all for just $265 a pop. For all the info, check out americascardroom.eu.